well, the focal point is a little odd. Cat cataracts done in the left eye two weeks ago, so I've got one eye that's you know really perfect, and the other eye that's saying, "Wait a minute, where are you looking at?" You know, so we're going to work at that this coming week. Um, you know, we think it's been two weeks since Easter, um, and for the most part, it's Easter is kind of in the rear view mirror for most everybody. Uh, for the stores, they've already put all those discount candies on the shelf, and they're probably all gone, you know. Uh, the spring fashions are going on a little bit, and, and all of the things that, that pertain to that, you know, is we look in the past. It's Mother's Day coming up, you know. That's where we got to focus our heart's attention. And the resurrection, all of a sudden, had become, well, one day of the year. Or other times we might talk about it, but, but that's really all there is. However, as you read the scriptures, especially in the book of Acts, you see from the earliest days that the event of the resurrection changed lives. Not just for that day, the people you talk about at the resurrection, the disciples and others along the way. Because the church in that part of the world started with around 120 Christians and grew to around 200,000 within a very short period of time. It grew. And it was sourced in, and actually you read the sermons, every sermon in the book of Acts, every sermon has a reference to the resurrection. It was important to them. It was life-changing. And it fueled them and strengthened them for the purpose that was ahead. Yet, even though that church of Jerusalem and surrounding areas had tremendous growth, Growth in the church today, for the most part, in America and around the world, with their few exceptions, has not seen that kind of growth. Hasn't seen that kind of development, that openness that has, uh, was evident within the New Testament. Some churches that we have are slow to grow. Some are dying on the vine. Uh, we've seen buildings surrendered over to some other type of facility. We've got a, a little one in our neighborhood, and it's now a, a, a computer service uh, that was there. I believe that one of today's greatest needs is for the Christians to boldly and confidently proclaim the resurrection of Christ. And I just don't mean saying Jesus is risen from the dead, but the source of what these people believed in the New Testament what they were convinced of caused them to act. It, 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 Jesus was not dead, but he was alive, and it brought uh, newness to their actions. Obviously, the power that those apostles had, the miraculous power that was given at that time, isn't available to us. But there is indeed the power that works within us still available, and that's the Holy Spirit. We begin by reading Acts chapter 1 and the first 11 verses. And to see the difference between the evangelistic spirit of that first century church and making some comparisons to what we see with Christians in churches today. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive 
after his passion and many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they were therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, as ye have seen him go into heaven. Think about this. You read Acts chapter 2, following this initial proclamation, Peter preached his first sermon, And the result was 3,000 believed that day. 3,000 believed that day. Why isn't that done today? Obviously, it's all within the Lord's hands, but I think I hold the fact that the Christians of the early church not only believed what they do, yet they acted upon what they believed. We say there are a lot of things we believe, you know. We can go through the Apostles' Creed, or we can go through, I believe what the Bible says, but believing in a head sense versus believing to an action in a heart sense are two different things. This morning we want to see three things that this first century church believed, these Christians, and how it affected them. First of all, they believed that Jesus had risen. They believed that Jesus has risen. This was their message Again, verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion of many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Wow. Dead to alive. And he proved it. The proofs within scripture. In Luke, we see examples of that convincing proof offered by Jesus. He had his disciples touch him. He sat with them and ate. He was seen by others. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about 500 brethren all at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. You want proof 
500 and go ask them. They're still alive today. It's obvious. This wasn't a ruse, a disguise. Brethren, he died and he returned to life three days after. And that's a message most worthy of sharing again and again and again. Again, the resurrection message was a very part of every single sermon within the book of Acts. Why? Because they were using the, the same source? No, because that was the truth that was embedded within their hearts. Think back to the last time you received some really good news. What did you do about it? I remember when uh, Millie was uh, giving birth to our firstborn. Uh, I was in, in the Navy and we were up in the state of Washington and uh, I got to go to the hospital, but that's as far as you got in those. This is days before cell phones and everything. And yet the doctor came out and says, you've got a son. And I lifted off the ground about three feet and I proceeded to go back. You can go back to work. So I, you know, and I got back to the hangar and, and uh, begin before cell phones and had a handful of quarters. And I'm popping in that phone and I'm calling people, I'm calling people. Because I was just elated. It was such good news that I couldn't be holding back the wonder of all of those things that were before me. Why can't we do the same thing for the greatest news of all? Maybe because it's distant. Or maybe because we're sitting on the saved side of life that we don't necessarily think it's so exciting. But it indeed is. Evangelist Vance Havner wrote, the gospel is not something we come to church to hear. It is something that we go from church to tell. Come on to church and we'll hear the gospel. You know, No, it's that which is born within us, which seeds within the fact that Christ is not dead, but he's raised from the dead. We have an amazing message, a God's story to share with everyone that we know. The first century church grew with incredible numbers, Incredible rates, because the Spirit of God was working in truth that Christ had been risen from the dead, even as the Old Testament scriptures proclaimed. It was a story that they were compelled to say. Remember in that same resurrection day, the, the, the resurrected Jesus appeared to those two on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the others. And they had traveled down and finally word got out and he went through everything, but uh, their testimony was, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened up the scriptures to us? Their hearts burned because the reality, truth, that he was. I wasn't think of that story, and I think how, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't disguised or didn't have a, put, you know, a spell on these guys so they didn't know who it was. They, they, they thought he was dead, and to all practical purposes, he was dead. So even though he's walking with them and talking with them, the reality that this was Jesus, you know, their minds put out of it completely. And yet as he opened the Old Testament scriptures to them, all of the pieces of the puzzle, connecting of the dots, all put together, and all of a sudden they say, wow, our hearts burned within us, and they therefore took off back to Jerusalem to share that good news. I think that the church is not growing today because many of God's people don't feel the burning within their hearts. There's not a zeal, there's not an excitement of the change of life that occurs 
with the power of salvation within the resurrection. Barna survey recently showed that 73% of Christians believe that it was their responsibility to share the gospel. Three quarters of every group that they interviewed, it is our responsibility to share. Yet out of that group, out of that number, out of those three quarters, the 75%, only 52% of them had actually shared their faith once with somebody in the last year. I believe that's necessary that we do this, you know, eat three meals a day or drink, you know, so much quarts of water or whatever, but I don't do it. Doctor says, in order for me to be healed, I'm to take this medicine three times a day. Eh, I'm not going to do it. Well, there are consequences for that and consequences spiritually. If we believe that these things are true, we're only believing it up here. We're not believing it in the heart. And I think that was different with that Old Testament or the New Testament church. Edward Kimball, he was a Sunday school teacher long before you were around. In 1858, he led a Boston shoe clerk to give his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. That shoe clerk just happened to be D.L. Moody, who becomes an evangelist, well-known in all different places. And once in England, in preaching the gospel, in 1879, he awakened the heart of a man who would become uh, Reverend F.B. Meyer, a well-known pastor uh, in London and also in Boston. F.B. Meyer's preaching in America took him to a number of American college campuses, and he brought a student by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman to Christ by his preaching. Chapman engaged in the YMCA ministry and employed a former baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday to do his work. And the list goes on and on and on. It doesn't seem like much, but God uses one and is connected to the next and to the next and to the next and to the next. Because of the things they believed, they had a zeal. They had an earnestness, a sincerity about it, because you can't go wrong with a resurrected Christ. And one led to the other. Jesus is risen from the dead. And because he lives, I live also. And that is our message. That's our message. There's lots of things that we can talk about theologically. And lots of times people will come up to us and ask, well, what do you believe here? What am I doing I believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. That's the most important. But there's another belief that I think these first century Christians held to, not only within their heads, but applied them, is the fact that Jesus is ruling. Again, beginning at verse 6. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said unto them, It's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Where was the, 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 the thinking of the apostles at this time? It was on just what they had as a message on Palm Sunday. You know, Hosanna, 
you know. He's come, throw off the Romans, you know, restore the kingdom to Israel, a glory that it once was with Solomon and David. That was their thinking. They were still thinking of those things of the past. But when Jesus uses the word kingdom, he's not looking at an earthly kingdom of making Israel the great nation as it once had been. He was looking at a spiritual kingdom, something that they still had to understand and know. These brethren may have been confused, though, about definitions or the, the principles of kingdom, but what they weren't confused about is that they had somebody who was Lord, who was in charge, who was the ruler that they would obey. He gave out a great commission, and it was understood as not an option, but a command. Go ye! And they understood that, and everything else kind of fell into place. The Great Commission is the Lord's plan for every generation to take the gospel to Jerusalem, in other words, the immediate home front, and then Judea, stretching out farther than that, and Samaria, even farther, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's how the gospel has always worked, because Jesus had commanded it. And that, brethren, is our mission. A simple message, Jesus had risen from the dead. The mission that he's given from our commander is that we are to go, beginning where we are, and to take this same message out as God would give opportunity. Remember that in the world in which we live, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. It's hard to understand as we only see the flesh, as we only hear the words of people. But he's given us the full armor of God, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness. We should be engaging in a spiritual war as the soldiers of Jesus Christ. But for the most part, we find ourselves relaxing in church and letting Satan have his way as it works. Scripture commands, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not, we're not at warfare against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I understand how we feel towards certain things within our world within government and everything else. But that's why we come before this and say this is a spiritual battle. It is not a flesh and blood as we may perceive. Because of the heart of man being corrupt, that's the nature of what he does and where he goes. But Paul says, no, these things are spiritual. Friends, we're at war. Our commander-in-chief has called us to arms. And the battle is ours to fight. Dr. Jerry Driver had written this, and I think it's interesting. He says, it's beyond my understanding why we haven't given our sons and daughters to live and die to this task, meaning the presentation of the gospel. I can't understand why we send them, yea, even make them feel obligated to go to every corner of the world under the banner of patriotism, to kill, to cripple, to destroy in the defense of the American way of life, and yet actually discourage them from going into the same place to teach love, joy, patience, and peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have sent them to the tropical jungles of Vietnam, the deserts of Arabia, 
the cold of the Eastern Europe for months and years. And yet we scream and we kick and we fight and we fuss and we fume and we beg, please, anything, do anything, but please discourage my son to, from, discourage my son to preach. How long before we are going to see parents sending their children into the mission field to fight the only battle that we have been commissioned to fight? How long before we see the best of our people encouraged to save souls? How long before we have our armies going forth to missions under the banner of King Jesus? How long, how long? It's a shift of thinking, you know. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with patriotism for the American way of life and the Christian principles that we have. Yet, beyond that, years or geography-wise, beyond that, there is a much greater cause. We sing the song, we hear the words written by George Duffield, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished, for Christ is, what? Lord indeed. He's the Lord. He's the, the commanding general. That's the direction that we go in. Jesus is Lord indeed. And if he is truly ruling in my heart and my life, the path and the direction that we go in will be most obvious. As he is the captain of our salvation, we are to fulfill his mission, that which he's given us, that which he's commanded us. So I think the first century church had little or no obligation to the, the empire of Rome, even to the so-called nation of Israel at its particular time, but their heart's intention was to follow their commander-in-chief. And, and from that time of Pentecost, persecution came down as these believers grew in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden they were driven out of Jerusalem to their homes. Everybody had come from a thousand-mile radius. You read in, I think it's Acts 4, talking about all of the cities, the nations where these people came, Jews from all over the place. And you, you draw a line, and it's from a thousand-mile radius outside of Jerusalem. When persecution came, where did they go? They went back home. And what did they take with them? They took a message, and they took the mission that they had. The last and final thought that we'll talk about this morning is the fact that Jesus is returning. And this gave them motivation. Not only the message and not only the, the truth of what they were under, but their motivation, again beginning at 11. Ye men, ye men of Galilee, and, and, and again, you can imagine how that was. Uh, the description is a cloud comes underneath the Lord and just takes him up like that. And, and he says, ye men of Galilee, the angels, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Wow. There are times that you've probably done the same thing when you see some of these sunsets, you know, especially in the summers go long and, and the clouds and they just pattern themselves up there and you can almost see, you know, there, the, the return of the Lord. And there's been a lot of uh, false pictures of that described by people. But 
I think the words of these angels were important in preparing the hearts and minds of the apostles. For you see, Jesus had been gone. Forty days he was with them. And maybe they were thinking at that time, 40 days, that's going to continue. You know, but no, he was gone. He was not dead, but he had been taken up into heaven. So now the work that was Jesus' work was their work. He would come again, and Jesus may have gone, but he will return. If we believe the second coming like these first century Christians, I think our heart's attitude would be somewhat different than it is today. They feel that he will return just as he had done, unexpectedly. And that's the one thing that was of a real shock to them. I think those 40 days with Christ was, was an unknown period of time, and all of a sudden he's gone, unexpectedly. You say, guys, last meeting tonight, 7.30, we're going to be meeting over on the side of the hillside, and you can watch me go. Didn't happen. You know, he's going to return, as the angel said, unexpectedly. We like to say, well, these are the signs and the times of the Lord's coming unexpectedly, visibly, in the clouds, and with power. Jesus will return in the same fashion, not as we would plan it. Returning to inspire those to continue to preach to the lost. Jesus said, but of that day and of that hour no man knoweth, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Watch, therefore, in other words, be, be aware of what's going on. Uh, Jesus told Peter and John while they were in the garden, he's going to go in to pray, and he says, watch and pray, you fall not into temptation. He uses the same word here. He says, watch, be aware of what's going on around you in life. Watch, and the, no man knoweth the, no, knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour the Lord doth come. The words seem quite clear enough, but the disregarding of these words, the highly anticipated events has been unfortunately abused by many. We've heard of Harold Camping's two times opportunities to present such and how many people were uh, uh, led astray by that. Um, in the early 1800s, uh, churches in America were growing rapidly. And again, 1800s, early part, that's really just the East Coast part of our nation. It was at this time that a man by the name of William Miller of New York was uh, concluded that Jesus would return in 1843 or 1844 by his studies. The situation in the country was of such that he became a keynote speaker. Uh, his groups multiplied. Uh, they felt he was in earnest. He was a very eloquent speaker. And finally, he got to the point where he had a specific day that it would occur, October 22nd of 1844. Uh, the years before, 1839, there was a, a financial upheaval in the United States, at least in that part of the country. So uh, people are saying, oh, these are the signs. Things are not doing well in the country. So they were prepared. There was great anticipation of Christ's return. Prophetic charts were actually printed in the newspapers. People were reading right next to the, the, the stock markets and all those other types of things there uh, printed out, and people had great interest in them. They were swallowing up these teachings from New England all the way south. As the morning of October 22nd of 1844 began, 
There was a sense of apprehension that fell all over the area. People gathered on mountaintops and in churches. Normal activities ceased. Towns became quiet as people searched out a place to gather together. Normal activities had ended and they waited for the sudden opening of the skies and the end of the world. Guess what? <laughs> yeah. And, and we chuckle at that. And what happens became the, not only a heart crushing for the Christians who had fallen into that, but it became known a great disappointment for the people. Actually, the event to the world was called the Great Disappointment. It was a mockery of the Church of Jesus Christ. But brethren, when Jesus returns, it will not be disappointing. We anticipate it in God's time, and it should be an experience that we will continue to anticipate. We live in a sea of lost souls who will one day unexpectedly, unknown to them, unexpectedly enter into an eternity, a Christless eternity, and they will be in hell for all that time. It's not something we glory in, especially if we think, oh, they're our enemies or they hate Christians and so forth. Paul was a man of such. Fulfilled a great commission. And I think making our mission even more complicated is that there are more unsaved people in our world every single day than there have been in the past. Last year, the population of the U.S. was approximately 333 million people. About 10,200 babies were born at that time in uh, each day, and 8,000 8, adults died each day. So it was an approximate gain of 2,000 people every single day who'd never heard the name of Jesus Christ. The number of people still to hear, not even you know, uh, any clue of what's going on. That gain number in the world population is 275,000 every 24 hours. Our world grows by that number, 275,000 each day of people who have yet to hear of Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ motivated the first century Christians to do what they could, to bring forth the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the word of God to the far corners of the world. The Institute of American Church Growth questioned 4,000 people on how they first came to know uh, eventually uh, the church, but to become born again. In other words, these were Christians. And how did you first get initiated to hear the gospel? What brought you in uh, to that? A half to 1% came through public evangelistic crusades. I don't know how many really big crusades we have today, I guess, coronavirus kind of shut down if any of those, if there were going to happen. But I think of the Billy Graham crusades and things like that. One to two percent were reached by visitation programs. We're going to go out to door to door and we're going to visit people in the neighborhood and people would say, I go back to that time when somebody was at my door and they knocked and, and gave me a track or invited me to church. One to two percent came through a special need. You know, and there are times when we're struggling in life, and where do we go? Well, somebody, why don't you come into my church? You know, or, you know, I have a special need, me financial, some pain or, or whatever that I've got. The church will help. 
two to three percent just walked in. You know, the door is open. People are here. You need to have a church. That's where they come and they eventually hear the gospel. Two to three percent came through the church's programs, vacation Bible school, uh, uh, you know, feed the hungry or, or, or whatever, some program that the church offers to the public. Four to five percent came through the Sunday school class. Uh, many of them, you know, uh, was it, uh, I can't remember the percentage, but a very high percentage came to know Christ before the age of 12. Five to six percent were attracted by the preacher. You know, that kind of puts you in your place. <laughs> you know, oh, come to hear, you know, Dr. So-and-so, and they'll have the banners out. And, you know, oh, I like to hear that, you know, come and hear him, you know. 75 to 90% are eventually converted through the influence of friends and relatives. 75 to 90% of the people who came, eventually came to Christ, out of these 4,000, were done so through the influence of friends and relatives. You know, people we trust, you know. If somebody comes to my door, you know, first Millie will say, Somebody's at the door, you know. I'm not opening it, you know. And, 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 and you don't know. You don't know their message. You don't know their sales or whatever it is. But if it's somebody I know, I'm more than likely to invite them in. Talk with them. You know, you know so-and-so, this and that and, and that. And, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm more susceptible to the message that they've got. And they're saying there's, there's, a, there's an openness that's provided by that. What that should tell us is that there's souls of millions depend upon you and I. Collectively as a church, but in essence as a Christian, as an individual Christian. That first century church didn't identify themselves. I'm the Bible Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem, of Samaria. You know. uh, they weren't named. They were just people who were gathering at Timothy's house or Mark's house or, you know, uh, uh, Purdy's house or whatever it was and they met there un, 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 unnamed but they were individuals who made up a part of that group the first and greatest passion of Jesus was to seek and save the lost and I think to follow such an example as Christ cannot be satisfied with the status quo and you can't force people to do it okay but you got to say Lord Make my heart to be sensitive to these things. Help me to come out of my shell because Jesus has risen from the dead for me. And, and that, that which has provided for me has been commanded by my Jesus. And, and indeed, we have the principles that are all laying down there uh, for us. How the church goes, we say it's in the Lord's hands, obviously. Yet, he looks back to us and says, children, um, time is short, and uh, we need to be about his business. Let's pray. Father, we'll offer up these few uh, distorted thoughts from a time in history that the church was on fire, that individuals thought not of themselves, but thought of their Savior and how he was alive and that they were provided with the infallible proof of his living because they had seen him and that others had seen him 
and that he had given words that were to be honored to go to take such a message forth and that indeed with confidence they were doing it with the anticipation that he was going to return. Not that they would be afraid of that, but he would return in there was only a short time in order to accomplish that task. Lord, we put all things in your power, all things into your hands. Make us servants of the Most High God, more, more flexible and more observant, uh, more useful than we have in the past. Be patient with us. Um, be long-suffering to us. Uh, for we have many things to learn, and we are slow. Lord, uh, we believe, but increase our faith. Uh, we pray these things not for the church's sake, but for the glory of the Savior who died for us and rose again and is coming again. In his name, amen.